It's time for the Friday edition of Fighting for the Faith. It is Friday, July 10th, 2009. And I know many of you have worked hard in your vocations, putting in your 40 plus hours a week at the office. Maybe even making less than you were making a year ago because of the bad economy. Out there commuting to work. Maybe traveling. All in order to serve your neighbor and feed your family. And I thank you all for the work that you are doing. By the way, that is the definition of a good work. (laughs) Those of you who think that a good work is something, you know, something spiritual... Uh, No, Uh, Thessalonians makes it clear that we are to quietly work with our hands and provide for ourselves and not be a burden to others and uh, use uh, use the money that uh, we earn in our vocations even to help the poor. In fact, that's a critical thing for us to be doing, not because we have to, but because we have been shown such great mercy in Jesus Christ and through his shed blood on the cross, we've received mercy and forgiveness of sins from him and he has so richly blessed us with his blessings that we have been transformed so radically, raised from the dead that we can't help but also share that mercy with other people in tangible ways in ways that also include our checkbooks. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. I'd like to thank you for tuning in. It's Friday, like I said. This is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment designed to get you to think biblically, designed to get you to think critically, and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Because uh, there'd be a whole lot of deception going on nowadays. It seems like a, a, a contagious disease, uh, airborne disease of some type, where... People are out there basically infecting others with uh, spiritual poison using their words. And uh, it is passed from word to ear to heart. And so what do we want to do? We want to help inoculate you to this disease of deception by getting you to compare. Look at what people are saying. Stop and think critically and look at what they're saying and compare it to God's word. Because if what somebody is telling you is true in the name of God, then it will line up with God's word. Now, why do I pick the Bible over everything else? Well, it's real simple. When you look at the facts, Jesus Christ claimed to be none other than the one true God, the God of Israel in human flesh. And he proved this outrageous claim of his by raising himself from the dead three days after he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. This is a fact of history. If you don't like it, tough. All the evidence shows that that's the case. Get over it. It's true. Christ died for your sins. And so no other religious claim out there has even remotely anything close to this going for it. You want to prove that Christianity is not true? Find the bones of Jesus Christ. At least Shimka Yakubovich understood that that's the way you do it. He failed miserably in that attempt, by the way. Uh, But uh, the Bible, therefore, is exactly what Jesus Christ said it was, none other than the Word of God. The Word of God where not even a letter, a dot, a tittle of it shall pass away. Heaven and earth will pass away, but God's Word will not pass away. It is the truth. They are the very words of God. Now, does it give us a complete picture of God? Well, no. But what 
what it has revealed is most certainly true, and it can be trusted. So when somebody is speaking in the name of God and uh, claiming that the Bible says this or God says that, well, nowadays you, you have to stop and go, hmm, maybe, maybe not. Let me look and make sure. That's right. And I'm not exempt from this little exercise. That's right. Things that I say in the name of God or claim that the Bible teaches, you need to take what I'm saying and compare it to God's word. All right. We got an interesting program lined up today. Got a little bit of listener email. I want to read to you. And then take a look at this. Uh, apparently not to be outdone. Remember a couple of days ago we covered a story where um, the uh, St. Michael Jackson has appeared in a tree stump and uh, in Stockton, California. Well, not to be outdone, the Virgin Mary has decided that she's going to uh, respond in kind. And so the Virgin Mary has been spotted in, an, uh, in a tree in Ireland. So that's right, in an Irish tree. So we're going to talk about that story from the Telegraph in the U.K., and uh, let's see here, moving along, this is this is probably a, a news story I should play the Twilight Zone theme music to because I find myself in a position where I agree with the ACLU, that would be the American Civil Liberties Union, this is the group that has tried very hard to get rid of just about every public display of anything religious, um... And they've been actively doing it. It seems like since I've been alive, maybe they've been doing it as long as Noah's been around. I have no idea. But apparently they're demanding a, a jail to end its anti-religion censorship. And so in a strange but true, uh, yeah, I'll have to read the story. I, you know, again, weird. I'm, the, I'm finding myself agreeing with the ACLU. And then as promised, we haven't got, uh, I've been trying to get to this for two days. We're going to talk about the, quote, Massachusetts Bible Society if you can call it that. And then uh, we're going to round out today's program with part four of my uh, lecture on how to correctly interpret God's word. And so lots of stuff for you to enjoy and learn from and uh, compared to uh, God's word, taking a couple of day rest from the bad sermons, you know, so that we can lay some groundwork that I can refer back to in the future when it comes to biblical interpretation. All right, with that, we're going to dive into our show proper. We got email here from uh, Steve in Eugene, Oregon. He says, Chris, I have a question for you. I've been listening for the last couple of days to a five-part lecture you gave at Faith Lutheran Church. You mentioned the Bible is not our guide for life. Now, this is referring to the um, the program, you know, basically the lectures I've been playing right now. He says, I fully agree, but I also realize that I don't exactly, uh, know uh, how I should define the word of God. How would you define the word of God? Well, we'll begin. Well, that's a good question. How should we define the word? First of all, it's God's self-revelation, but it has a specific purpose for its existence. Okay. Now, let me give you a passage of scripture that should help. Now, the self-stated purpose of the Gospel of John, I think, does expand out to other portions of scripture. The self-stated purpose of the Gospel of John is found in the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verse 31. But remember, one of our primary rules for biblical interpretation is that you would read things in context. So we're going to read this uh, verses 30 and 31 and see, uh, see if this helps. Um, it says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. 
Let me read that again. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. Now, if you were to ask me what the, you know, the overarching purpose of the Bible is, I think that's the best summary of it. The scriptures are written so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we might have life in his name. John chapter 20, verse uh, 31. Now, there's another passage of scripture that a lot of people go to, and it's it's a fine passage, but you have to be careful in how you use it because Rick Warren twists it. Um, let me uh, read it to you again in context. I'm going to read 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting at verse 10. It says, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim of life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, there's a reason why I'm pointing this out to you in context, is because uh, he's make, this is something that is written to Christians, okay? And so there are Christians who desire to live a godly life in Christ. And that's exactly what Christians desire to do. Not out of gratitude because of the gospel. That's not really a deep enough reason. The reason why Christians desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus is specifically because they have been given faith. They have been raised from the dead. They help the Holy Spirit indwells them. Uh, they are made, they are new creation. Their heart of stone has been replaced with a heart of flesh. On some very fundamental level, Christians are ontologically different than everybody else. And so their natural desire is to live a life in Christ, uh, to live a godly life in Christ. Now, this desire also war, is at war with our sinful flesh. Okay. So the Christian life is one marked by what I continue to refer to here. It's, it's described as simul justus et peccator, that the Latin phrase meaning that we are simultaneously justified. That means we are declared righteous in Christ, and we are still sinner at the same time. In other words, Christians are both sinners and saints. It's a, it's a world-walking paradox, and this paradox does not get resolved until our death or really is not in its fullness isn't fully addressed until the resurrection now christians do not believe that uh, human beings are going to spend that christians are going to spend eternity uh, as angels disembodied spirits floating on cloud nine and playing harps that cartoon characterization i have no idea where it came from but that is not what christians believe christians in fact the scriptures make it clear that uh, when Christ comes in glory to judge both the living and the dead, that we will be raised again with physical bodies. These physical bodies will be just like Christ's body. In fact, it kind of raised, if you would, a physical spiritual body. You know, they have flesh, they have bones, and we will no longer sin. We will be like Christ. And, uh, And so... You know, I'm doing a little eschatology here, but here's the deal. So, for a Christian, we are we are we are now and not yet holy. Does that make any sense? It's it's a fun little tension and paradox that we Christians get to live in. It's almost schizophrenic. It's oh, oh so fun. 
But again, I, I just pointing this out, we're reading this in context, coming back then to uh, the scripture. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be curse- persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Sad. We can throw people into that category, such as Catherine Jefferson Shorey and the emergent guys. But as for you, continue what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. So let me read this again. But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, coming back to John chapter 20, uh, verse uh, 31, that says, These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, and and that by believing you have life in him, okay? So here, the, a great cross-reference is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, okay? And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God. All of it. Okay, now this is, inc- this is important, because one of the things that's happening today among liberals... And you're gonna, you'll hear a little, little bit of this um, in um, the Massachusetts Bible Society. Well, that, I say that in loose terms, uh, is that people? There is a move afoot to somehow elevate certain sections of Scripture above and beyond others. The red letter Christian liberals, okay, they are at war with the Apostle Paul. At least that's who they think they're at war with. Because they disagree with salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ's shed blood on the cross alone. They don't believe it. Okay? They don't want to have anything to do with that. And so they have a problem with this idea of an imputed righteousness. They have a problem with a substitutionary atonement. They have a problem with it. And so what they basically have tried to do is somehow find a way where they can exalt one section of Scripture over another. But the Bible itself, okay, God the Holy Spirit makes it clear that all Scripture is God-breathed. There's not one section of Scripture that you can look to and say, this is more God-breathed than this section. This is more tainted by somebody else's opinions, therefore we can ignore it. None of that. All Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Okay? So it's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, in order that the man of God may be competent and equipped for every good work. Now, this is important. 17 says it, the, 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 it's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness in order that, so that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. So, over overall, what do we say about Scripture? Well, 
again, uh, I would I would first and foremost primarily look to you know passages such as John chapter uh, twenty verse thirty one. And again, you know, that says that these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That I think that's really the overarching goal of all of the scriptures, okay? Um, and that, again, is buttressed or um, confirmed by Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. We're talking about the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ. And then... Those who have faith in Christ, those who trust and believe in Christ, those who have been transformed, who have been given faith, um, the scripture is breathed out and is therefore profitable for, uh, for those who have faith in Christ for teaching, for reproof, for correction. Notice the reproof and correction. Um, again, not very popular things to do nowadays uh, by today's politically correct culture, yet it needs to be done. In order that the man of God may be competent and equipped for every good work. And fundamentally, what are the good works that we are called to do? Well, we're, we as Christians, um, we truly can and do love God and love neighbor. Not because we have to, but because we have been saved by grace through faith. And so we do these, you know, we do love God and love neighbor in all that we do. So equipped for every good work, the primary good work then is what? preaching the gospel, proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name, going out and uh, working a nine-to-five job, uh, working in the church, cleaning snotty noses, changing diapers, all all of these things. But I want to point something out to you, that it's the sacred writings, it's the ones that are written, okay? The scripture themselves, the writings, it doesn't talk about, in fact, uh, uh, pasa grafe, the the Greek there, grafe, writing, it's a written document. Okay, all written scripture, all scripture is breathed out by God. There is this move afoot, and you've you've got examples of it here on Fighting for the Faith, of people who are attacking the written word of God and, and favoring instead some direct ecstatic experience. Yet nowhere in scripture does it, are any promises uh, attached to the profitability per se of of these ecstatic experiences instead we are god's word points us to his word and it's through the scriptures that we become competent and equipped for every good work so kind of a long and a long answer to your question there steve but i hope that helps again you know these things are written that you may believe that jesus is the christ and those who trust in christ and the scripture is profitable and uh, competent for equipping you for every good work. Okay, I got an email from uh, James Sunquist, who's the director of Rock Salt Publishing. And he writes, he says, uh, Dear Chris, I must give you highest uh, commendations for Lighthouse Trails and Jan Markell's and Ken Silva's rightful scathing sharp rebuke of Rick Warren. Shout it from the rooftops. Here's my response to this admin- uh, abomination committed by Rick Warren. By the way, he's responding to Rick Warren's... Um, Speaking at the um, uh, the uh, Islamic Society of North America's uh, convention, and by the way, I've taken a look at uh, I've done some more research on this, and it really does look like in the past there have been financial ties uh, between this group and terrorist organizations. And I've been in communication with ISNA, and I will be getting a copy of the uh, Rick Warren's uh, uh, keynote speak. 
uh, speech. It's quite a question of when I've, you know, they've said they would send it to me. I haven't received it yet. It, it's not on their website. So as soon as I have it, we'll be reviewing it. And I, you know, I consider truth to be timely. It doesn't matter. You know, we'll, we'll cover it when it comes there. But uh, James, uh, right, he says, I found it extremely ironic that Rick Warren's purpose-driven churches enforce removal of Bible studies, removal of good Bible teachers from churches. Uh, Christian pur- uh, purpose-driven pastors like a, a, like a top Rick Warren lieutenant calling the police to remove a Christian from public property in front of his church because he picketed against the church, conducting purpose-driven teachings and daring to talk to members of his congregation. Now, James here is uh, talking about something that many of you may not be aware of, and I've, I've come up, become aware of this over the years because I've received emails from people who have had their churches, for lack of a better way of putting it, they, they have been taken over, hostilely take over, taken over, uh, uh, and transformed into purpose-driven churches. I've received emails from people who were Bible teachers in their churches prior to them going purpose-driven, and they were shown the door. I kid you not. They were shown the door uh, by the you know by the church once they decided to go purpose-driven. In fact, I remember receiving a few years ago an email from a gentleman who uh, was a Bible teacher. Uh, on Sundays and by day was uh, a police officer and uh, his church brought in a new pastor and they decided they were going to go purpose driven. And at before that time he was teaching the adult Sunday school class and he was working his way through the book of Philippians. He was called in to have a meeting with the pastor and the pastor said, well, we don't want you teaching that Sunday school class anymore. That, that won't be going on. However, since you're a police officer, though, if you'd like to stay, we'd love for you to teach uh, classes on anger management. Needless to say, he didn't stay at that church. And there was an organization, I don't, James, I don't know if they're still around or not, uh, uh, Church Transitions, Inc. Um, th- these people, I kid you not, uh, I've looked at their, their course material and they help churches transition from being traditional churches to purpose-driven churches. And they've got a whole methodology uh, set up uh, for basically driving out anybody who would dare speak a word against the, ch- uh, the changes that are occurring in the church. And uh, to say that they drive people out on a rail is an understatement. In fact, I've seen material where, uh, you know, from organizations like this, where they encourage pastors uh, who are trying to to transition their churches into seeker-driven churches uh, to not only drive these people out, but if those people end up going to another church to teach, calling up that other church and telling them and telling the that uh, the pastor of that other church that these people are troublemakers, basically trying to not to get rid of them altogether, make it so they don't teach at all anywhere. I kid you not. This is not something I spend a lot of time discussing here at Fighting for the Faith, but James brought it up, and I think you needed to know that. Anyways, um, so James is is talking about uh, Rick Warren's speech before ISNA, and he says, um, let me read this sentence. I found it extremely ironic that Rick Warren's purpose-driven churches enforce removal of Bible studies, removal of good Bible teachers from churches, Christian purpose-driven pastors like a a top Rick Warren lieutenant calling the police to remove a Christian from the prop." 
from public property in front of his church because he picketed against the church conducting purpose-driven teachings and daring to talk to members of his of his own congregation and Rick Warren himself trains pastors how to remove resistors who oppose his global uh, peace plan, yet he tells Muslims we should work together. That is kind of ironic, don't you think? I, I, in some ways, uh, those people who've experienced uh, a hostile takeover of their church and it's been transitioned into a purpose-driven church, they would tell you from their experience that the purpose-driven methodology is, in a way, a form of Christian Sharia. I'm not making that. I know that's a that sounds over the top, but it's true. And if you've experienced it, then you know exactly what I'm talking about. Rick Warren's appearance at the North American Islamic Convention is the antithesis of what the Apostle Paul would have done. Rick Warren tells the multitudes of Muslims he does not want to change their convictions. The Apostle Paul's primary mission was to change the convictions of followers of other religions. Exactly, James, you're right. That's the whole point of repentance, isn't it? The Greek word for repentance is metanoia. Metanoia literally means to change one's mind. So here you have Rick Warren standing in front of the ISNA convention on the 4th of July saying that he doesn't want to change their convictions. Yet the Apostle Paul, following the instructions of Jesus Christ directly, goes out to change the minds and convictions of people following false religions. Good point, James. Uh, Where is Christ crucified in Warren's speech? He's not there, James. Uh, Where is marking Muhammad as a false teacher in his speech? It wasn't there, James. Uh, While Christians throughout the world are being martyred by Muslims, yes, they are, James, you're right. Rick Warren remains silent. He sure does. Um, In fact, we've covered some stories just this week on this. He could not have insulted them any more. Yeah, you're right. Uh, what a reproach. While Rick Warren calls on, on all Christians and Muslims to work together, all true Christians should mark Rick Warren as a false teacher, as Scripture requires, and expel him and most certainly not partner with him. Well, that's not going to happen because you know Rick Warren's a big thing. He's America's pastor, and everyone wants to just jump on board the purpose-driven bandwagon and be part of the crowd. You know, you know, be on that broad road rather than the narrow one. While Muslims are burning down churches, Rick Warren is hijacking them with his global peace plan. It isn't just the government that is big brother seizing churches. It's now the church. James, I think you have some great points. Excellent email. All right, we're going to take our first break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about the Virgin Mary. Apparently, she's upset that she was up, uh, she was uh, one-upped by Michael Jackson. That would be St. Michael Jackson now, because uh, Michael Jackson appeared in a tree in Stockton. So the Virgin Mary has now appeared in a tree in Ireland, so we're going to talk about that, talk about how I find myself oddly agreeing with the ACLU, and uh, talk about the Massachusetts Bible Society when we get back. So if you would like to email me, you can at uh, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com that's talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can look me up on Facebook and ask to be my friend or follow me on Twitter my name there is Pirate Christian we'll be right back Unless your righteousness surpasses that of Rick Warren, you cannot be saved. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. It's 
Monty Python's Flying Circus Church. So the new pastor came in and shut down the Sunday school, uh, canceled the adult Bible study, no. dumped the hymnals, oh. sacked the choir, and put Damn. in a praise band and started preaching sermons that sound like they could be preached or done on Dr. Phil's program. It's awful. I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody expects the purpose-driven inquisition. Our chief weapon is purpose. Purpose and vision. Vision and purpose are two weapons. Our purpose and vision. And ruthless relevance are three weapons. Our purpose, vision, and ruthless relevance in an almost fanatical devotion to record are four weapons. Now, amongst our weaponry are such elements as purpose, vision. I'll I'll come in again. I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody expects a purpose-driven inquisition. Amongst our weaponry are such diverse elements as purpose, vision, ruthless relevance, and almost fanatical devotion to Rick Warren and nice Hawaiian shirts. Oh, damn. I can't say it. You'll have to say it. Uh, what? You'll have to say what the bit about our chief weapons are. Uh, I, I couldn't do that. <clears throat> I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody uh, expects. Uh, expects no. Nobody expects the um, purpose-driven inquisition. Uh, I, I know. I know. Nobody expects the purpose-driven inquisition. In fact, those who our do chief ex- weapons are our chief weapons are um, purpose, uh, uh, vision. Okay. Okay. Stop. Stop that. Stop that. Our chief weapons are purpose. Blah 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 blah. Youth pastor Rick. Read the charges. Dude, you're like hereby charged with being divisive and not following our program. That's enough! Now, how do you plead? Well, we're innocent. Ha! 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 We'll soon change your mind about that! Orthodox Christianity clearly teaches God's law, which condemns our sinful nature, and clearly proclaims the gospel of Christ's death and resurrection on our behalf to pay for our sinfulness. These truths of Holy Scripture are timeless and objective. However, a creeping fog known as the emergent church threatens to unravel these clear teachings by redefining the vocabulary and core beliefs of the Christian faith in terms of subjective personal feelings and experiences. That is why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to offer The Emergent Church, Undefining Christianity, a book by Bob DeWay that is widely regarded as the best book available on the emergent heresy. The book is $12.95 plus $4 shipping and handling, and all proceeds directly support the Christ-centered ministry of Pirate Christian Radio. Log on today to piratechristianradio.com and order your copy of The Emergent Church, Undefining Christianity. Listening to Fighting for the Faith. Warning, this program could cause you to become supremely 
dissatisfied with your church, especially if your pastor is not giving you God's word, and more importantly, the goods. What's the goods? It's the gospel of Jesus Christ, the comforting words of the forgiveness of sins. Believe it or not, I don't care if you've been a Christian your entire life. I don't care if you were dedicated as a baby and made a decision to follow Jesus when you were at camp in junior high and you think that you've been following Christ all of your life, you still need to hear that Jesus Christ died for you because you are aware of the fact of just how far you fall short on a daily basis. You know you ain't pulling off God's law. And those of you who lie awake at night have that nagging feeling. You never, you ever have that moment in the middle of the night, it's about three something in the morning, you're in a dead sleep, and next thing you know, you are sitting straight up in bed, and you go, I'm going to die someday. You know what I'm talking about? Just that overwhelming thought. You know, as surely as I'm sitting here looking at this or watching that or hearing this, as surely as I'm sitting here speaking on the radio to you today, there's going to be a day when I'm going to have to be standing face to face before the King of Glory, God Himself. You know what I'm talking about. You know that there, you have these feelings, that overwhelming sense of, what am I going to do? You, you, the blood draining from your face. That cold chill that comes with the realization, you know, I'm going to have to stand before God and, man, I'm just not holy enough. Man, I, 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 and you have those fears. Is God going to say to me, well done, thou good and faithful servant? Or is he going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. Those of you who've experienced that dread, I know I have, know exactly what I'm talking about. Well, I've got news for you. There's nothing that you can do. There's no amount of pulling yourself up by your moral bootstraps that's going to make it possible for you to be able to stand before God and for him to declare you to be righteous. Let me give you a completely unsanctified metaphor here. Imagine you are in Vegas and you're sitting at the roulette table. The gospel of Jesus Christ tells you to bet all the blue chips on Jesus, don't hedge your bets, don't push your stuff around, don't play the line, don't play the odds or the evens or anything like that. All your chips on Christ and him crucified for your sins. The gospel of Jesus Christ says that that's the number that's going to win and that everybody who bets their blue chips on Jesus will hear these words, well done. Thou good and faithful servant. Not because you were smart enough to bet your blue chips on Jesus, but because Jesus Christ himself did the one thing that God, God's law demands us to do that none of us have done, to live a perfectly sinless and righteous life. He lived a perfectly sinless and righteous life. 
He gives you his righteousness when you trust in him by faith, and all of his all of your sins are given to him, and he's punished in your place. He he is taking on the wrath of God for you, atoning for your sins and propitiating God's wrath. Propitiation, kind of a weird term. Uh, those of you men out there, you know what a propitiation is. You just don't know it. A propitiation, we y'all, we men. I hate to say this. We all have Dame Bramage, okay? You, you know it. I know it. It's it, listen. I, I don't. I, from my point of view, women are complicated. Just ridiculously complicated. And for whatever reason, I, especially in the early years of my marriage, had this wonderful gift for saying just the dumbest things in the whole world. I didn't mean to say them in a way that would be taken that way. I wasn't being mean and vindictive. or, But you, you know what I'm talking about? So you've done something, you've said something, and you've upset your wife, right? And you're thinking, what can I do to, to get out of the doghouse? So I know I'm going to go and I'm going to get, uh, you know, a, a dozen roses and a, and a, and a, and a I'm sorry card and, 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 and I'm going to make her dinner and rub her feet, you know. And so you, you, you go and you, you get a dozen roses and you make her dinner and you rub her feet. And what, what happens is, is that all of those things, the dozen roses, the, uh, the dinner and the, and the feet rubbing, those are a propitiation because what happens after that is that your wife's anger subsides and you are brought back into her good graces, right? That's what propitiation is. So Christ has propitiated God's wrath, assuaged it. And so everybody who trusts in Christ alone, not some blue chips on Jesus and some blue chips on you, all the blue chips go on Jesus, period. It's the only winning number. Anyway, so you need to hear the gospel. You need to hear it. These comforting words. And I've got it's such great news. And it's for you. You. Yet the, yet, I know you're thinking, who's he talking to? You. If you're hearing my voice, I'm talking to you. Christ died for you. He is your Savior. He is your great God and merciful Savior. His blood purchased you. And He loves you. There is no better great news. All right, switching gears here. I hate to, yeah, I love preaching the gospel. I hate to switch gears, especially with crazy stories like this. But, you know, we've got a program we've got to do. So, all right. So, <laughs> moving along here. Um, let me pull here. We, from the Telegraph in the UK. <clears throat> Headline reads Virgin Mary spotted in Irish tree. That's right. Apparently, the Virgin Mary, not to be outdone by the newly sainted Michael Jackson, who just appeared on a tree in Stockton, has now appeared in a tree in Ireland. Uh, religious fever has taken root in the Irish village of Rathkeel. Uh, uh, after workmen claimed the image of the Virgin Mary appeared in the remains of a felled churchyard tree. 
Uh, oh man, the supposed visions uh, surprised locals who have come to uh, to their hundreds to pray and light candles in the grounds of the Holy uh, Mary Parish Church. While some believe the uh, willow should be preserved and covered in glass, others think the believers are just barking up the wrong tree. Apparently, pun intended there. Um, <clears throat> Noel White, uh, Rathkill Community Council Graveyard Committee Chairman, nice alliteration there, um, said workmen sprucing up the church land saw the image when they cut the tree. One of the lads said, look, our blessed lady in the tree, Mr. White said. One of the other lads looked over and actually knelt down and blessed himself. He got such a shock. It was the perfect shape of the verge uh, the figure of Our Lady holding the baby. Candles and rosaries, beads have been draped over the stump by prayerful locals, with up to 700 holding a candlelight vigil last night into the early hours of the morning. Boy. Mr. White said the people have been traveling from neighboring uh, from, na- from the neighboring county of Kerry as word of the phenomenon spread. While it is believed a local Gaelic Athletic Association club from a nearby parish also brought two busloads of people. It's not, it is just a tree, but it's what it depicts when you look at it, Mr. White said. It's just phenomenal what's going on, and it's, and it's not just Rathkeel. They're coming in from all over the place. But all, but not all villagers have seen the supposedly divine image with some treating the discovery with skepticism. Local priest uh, Friar Willie Russell refused to get caught up in the hype but said that he was not surprised by the outpouring of interest. This is just going on, this is just going on and on, he said. My impression of it at the moment is that I have no impression of it. It does not interest me that, the, uh, that much at the moment. I have seen the tree. It's only a tree. Friar Russell also insisted not everyone in the area believes the image of Our Lady appeared on the tree. <sighs> Look, you know, boy, I tell you, you know what's wrong with all these stories? You know, Jesus appearing on a toasted cheese sandwich, Mary appearing on a tortilla chip, um, you know, Jesus on a Cheeto, and now the Virgin Mary on a tree and Michael Jackson on a tree is you know what really happens is is that people end up arguing as to whether or not this was a valid miracle when the the real miracle we really should be proclaiming to the world and getting them to think about and con- confronting them with is the miracle of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Him being crucified under Pontius Pilate and three days later rising again bodily from the grave and being witnessed by over 500 of his followers. And by doing so, proving his claim, proving his claim to being God in human flesh, and proving that his death on the cross was for your sins. I mean, it's just so stupid to be arguing about whether or not the Blessed Virgin Mary appeared on a tree stump. You know, it just, it just drives me nuts. All right, moving along. All right, ACLU demands end to jail's anti-religion censorship. Yeah, let me read that headline again. Um, this is from Lawrence D. Jones, Christian Post reporter. 
the ACLU, that would be the anti-Christian, I mean, American Civil Liberties Union, um, demands end to jail's anti-religion censorship. Yeah, apparently, here's one where we're on the same side of an argument with the ACLU. The American Civil Liberties Union, backed by groups including Prison Fellowship and the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty, is demanding that officials at a regional corrections facility in Virginia end their illegal censoring of religious materials sent to detainees. There's a secondary story here. That, um, in a letter sent Thursday to the superintendent of the Rappahannock Regional Jail in Stafford, the ACLU asked for jail officials, officials to guarantee in writing that the jail will no longer censor biblical passages from letters written to detainees and to revise the jail's written inmate mail policy to state that letters will not be censored simply because they contain religious material. So, yeah, that was what's going on here. The Rappahannock Regional Jail, if you were to send one of the detainees a letter and it contained a Bible verse, they would censor the letter and get rid of that Bible verse. Quote, it's nothing short of stunning that a jail would think it's okay to censor the Bible and other religious material for no reason other than its religious nature, said David Shapiro, staff attorney with the ACLU National Prison Project. Such, such censorship violates both the rights of detainees to practice religion freely and the, and the free speech rights of those wanting to communicate with detainees. And the ACLU is right. Again, I'm just not comfortable with being on the same side of an issue with the ACLU, but they're right. According to the ACLU, the letter was prompted by a complaint brought to the ACLU by Anna Williams, a devout Christian whose son was detained at Rappahannock beginning in June of 2008 until his transfer earlier this year. Williams wanted to send her son religious material, including passages from the Bible, to support him spiritually during his confinement. But rather than deliver Williams' letters to her son in full, jail officials reportedly removed any and all religious material, destroying the religious messages Williams sought to convey to her son. In one incident... Jail officials reduced three, uh, uh, a three-page letter sent by Williams to her son to nothing more than the salutation, the first paragraph of the letter, and the closing, love mom, after excising biblical passages. Yeah, that's some frightening stuff here that the Rappahannock jail would... What would make them think they have a right to do that? Um, what, just because it contained religious information? Religious passages? Interesting. Again, we're on the same side of the argument with the ACLU. How odd is that? <clears throat> we continue. Um, uh, it, quote, it's, it, it is essential that jail officials abide by the law and the requirements of the U.S. Constitution, argues Daniel Matt. Mock, director of litigation for the ACLU program on freedom of religion and belief. People do not lose their right to religious worship simply because they are incarcerated. Other signatories to the ACLU's letter addressed to the jail superintendent, Joseph Higgs, Jr., include the Virginia Interfaith Center for, the, uh, for Public Policy, the Rutherford Institute Prison Fellowship, the Friends Committee on National Legislation, and the Beckett Funds for Religious Liberty. Copies of the letters were also sent to a handful of, of city and, uh, and county officials. So well, this is a story we're going to follow up on, and uh, it's frightening to hear that Rappahannock Jail was uh, r basically 
taking away someone's right to uh, free speech and religious expression just because they were incarcerated. And uh, we hope that they will uh, see the light and uh, and change their ways because that's a form of, uh, shall we say, religious persecution. And again, how odd. We're on the same side of the argument with the ACLU. Yeah, I'm just not sure what to do with that. Okay, moving along. This next segment, we're going to begin it in this hour and finish it in the next hour. And we're going to introduce you to um, the Massachusetts Bible Society. We're going to have to put Bible Society in um, quotes. Why? Because the Massachusetts Bible Society is kind of a misnomer. They really should be called the Massachusetts Non-Bible Society or the Massachusetts Subvert the Bible Society or the Massachusetts We Ain't Gonna Obey the Bible Society, uh, but they're not any, by any stretch of the imagination a true Bible Society. Why? Well, let's just say we'll start off with strike one. When their, their executive director is the Reverend Ann Robertson. See if you can find the problem here. The Reverend Ann Robertson. She is supposedly a reverend who's the executive director of the, quote, Massachusetts Bible Society. What have we learned about female pastors? Well, yesterday's program laid it out very clearly, and if you want to go back and hear it, check the archives. Um, Basically, the Bible does does not allow for women pastors. There is no such animal. So now we've got a problem. The Reverend Ann Robertson is the executive director of the, quote, Massachusetts Bible Society, but the fact that she claims to be a reverend shows us something about what she thinks about the Bible. Obviously, she doesn't really believe it. So now we've got a woman who's a pastor running a Bible society that exists to not promote the Bible, but really to undermine it. Here's a proof of this claim number one. Robertson, the executive director of the Massachusetts Bible Society, where we take the Bible seriously, but not literally. Oh, boy. So that's the Reverend Ann Robertson from their introductory video available at YouTube saying that she's with the Massachusetts Bible Society where they take the Bible seriously. But not literally. No, no. You you know what's funny is they'll take the Sermon on the Mount literally, but nothing else. We continue. They'll take the morals literally to a point as long as it doesn't impinge on what the American culture wants. But we'll feed the poor. We take feeding the poor literally. Uh, But nothing else. Back in my college days, I used to have a bumper sticker on the door of my dorm room that said, God said it. I believe it, and that settles it. Well, I no longer believe that exactly that way. Oh, boy. So why are you the head of the, quote, Massachusetts Bible Society? Uh, Really, aren't you really existing to destroy the Bible and its authority? I mean, you're taking it, quote, seriously enough to want to undermine it. Anymore. In fact, I've found that when God speaks to me these days, it rarely settles anything. Really, when does God speak to you, Anne? 
whether it comes through scripture or through the still small voice of prayer. Oh, there it is again. That, you know, I'm getting real sick and tired of this whole still small voice thing. Go back and read the passage in context. It ain't saying that God's going to speak to you in a still small voice. I find that God's word to me leaves more questions. God's word, the important words there, to me. God's word to me. Uh, Anne, the question is not what the Bible means to you or God's word, what it means to you. The question is, what does it mean? That answers. Personally, I think that's on purpose. I think it's all a plot by God, in fact. Really? So God has plotted to basically provide more questions than answers. That's what the Bible is. It's designed to just create all kinds of questions but provide zero answers. It doesn't sound like the God of the Bible at all. Even a little kid reading the Bible can see that. Because if we focus on just the literal meaning of the words on a page, we forget that the God presented there is alive and well in the here and now and might well still have something to say. Uh, Anne, what a completely stupid argument. What a completely dumb argument. If we just look at the literal meanings of the word, uh, words on a page, we might forget that the God who inspired them is bigger. What does that have to do with it? The, all scripture is God-breathed. What do we know about the God who breathed these scriptures? He doesn't lie. We know that because he's told us about him, that about himself in the word. He doesn't change his mind like men. He's not capricious. He's revealed to us the truth, and truth is eternal. And he is the way, the truth, and the life. Do you think that because he's bigger than what he's revealed in the scriptures, that what he hasn't re- that what he has revealed isn't reliable to give us the truth? And that if we naively believe the the Bible, that God's going to say, you know, you were so stupid. Why didn't you listen to me? The whole point of the scriptures is not to give you answers that you can be certain about, but to give you questions. Uh huh. Suppose if instead of speaking perfectly clearly, God decided to muddy the waters a little bit. Suppose, what, really, the Bible is all about God muddying the waters? I don't think so. Jesus, when he spoke, he wasn't into mudding the waters. He would say things like, truly, truly, I say to you, or this is most certainly true. He, he wasn't into mudding the waters. He was speaking the truth, and he was speaking it clearly, and he even spoke truth that was not, let's say, popularly received. But he wasn't mudding the waters with uncertainty. The Bible is not about uncertainty. It's about certainty. By speaking through parables and poetry and strange apocalyptic visions with creatures with multiple heads and horns... Maybe if God did that, those words of the Bible could become not an ending point, but a beginning. Give me a break. What a complete bunch of scubalon. And I think that's what God did. Oh, really? I'm glad that's what you think. But you're wrong. By the way, faith is being sure. Faith is being certain of what we hope for. Sure of what we hope for, certain of what we do not see. 
Maybe I'm just being too clear. At the Massachusetts Bible Society, we want to introduce you to that beginning. We want to help you pick up and read the Bible in a new way. Really? We don't want you reading it with the idea that it's going to give you answers or certainty. But we're going to help you read the Bible in a way that will muddy things up. And rather than it becoming an end and giving you answers, it will become a beginning and you'll circle around the truth, wandering aimlessly in the desert of uncertainty. No thanks. A way that will take you back in time to the culture and the people of its day, but also a way that will take... By the way, did I mention that uh, she is illegally a pastor according to God's word? You out in There's no such thing as a female pastor. To the world. Jesus had no female apostles. In which we now live. A way that will not leave you chained just to the words on a page. What? Chained? We're going to... <clears throat> this is the, from the Massachusetts Bible Society. And they're going to, quote, unchain you from the words... On a page. I've got to back that up because don't you think that's kind of an odd way to talk about the Bible if you are from a Bible society? They're, they're going to unchain you from the words on a. Hmm, hang on a second. That will take you out into the world in which we now live. A way that will not leave you chained just to the words on a page. Oh, yeah. We don't. See, we want to. We, we want to unchain you from the Bible. When did the Bible become slavery? When did the Bible, when did the words on the page of the Bible become a form of bondage? Hmm. I can only, I can, I can only think of one type of person who would think that the Bible is a form of bondage. Only one type. That would be an unregenerate, unbelieving person who didn't like what it said. Just an observation on my part. But instead allow you to soar with eagle's wings into loving relationship with God and with your neighbor. I hope you... What? Enjoy our website. I hope you develop a hunger to study the Bible and to really delve into its depths. Why would I want to have a hunger for studying something that I need to be unchained from? But I also hope you come back out again, holding God by one hand and your enemy by the other. <laughs> oh, boy. To begin the challenging journey to which the Bible propels us and calls us. The journey Yeah, the, the the journey of repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. Of trusting in Christ like a child. To where the enemy is no longer the cross you bear, but your calling. The enemy is no longer the cross that you bear. But the enemy is your calling. Okay. Those of us at MBS are on the road with you. Uh, no, you're not. <laughs> well, yeah, well, actually, you are on a road, but you're not on the same road I'm on. You are on a big highway. I'm on a really, really narrow, narrow, narrow path. <sighs> when we come back, we'll play a little bit more from the Massachusetts... <clears throat> 
Bible <coughs> society because uh, they're not. <laughs> oh, man. What is that? Uh, rebellion against God's word in the name of God's word. What a, what a fun idea. Oh, boy. Uh, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard, you can talk back at fightingforthefaith.com. Talk back at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there is Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Orthodox Christianity clearly teaches God's law, which condemns our sinful nature, and clearly proclaims the gospel of Christ's death and resurrection on our behalf to pay for our sinfulness. These truths of Holy Scripture are timeless and objective. However, a creeping fog known as the emergent church threatens to unravel these clear teachings by redefining the vocabulary and core beliefs of the Christian faith in terms of subjective personal feelings and experiences. That is why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to offer The Emergent Church, Undefining Christianity, a book by Bob DeWay that is widely regarded as the best book available on the emergent heresy. The book is $12.95 plus $4 shipping and handling, and all proceeds directly support the Christ-centered ministry of Pirate Christian Radio. Log on today to piratechristianradio.com and order your copy of The Emergent Church, Undefining Christianity. We're back. Hour number two straight ahead. Need to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. Yeah, that means that your financial support is vital for us to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. You can support us a couple of ways. Visit FightingForTheFaith.com, click on one of our friendly yellow donate buttons, or make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, we're in the middle of uh, playing to you some audio from some videos put together by the so-called Massachusetts Bible Society, a Bible society that wants to unchain you from the written word of God, because apparently God's word is uh, like a ball and chain. It's like bondage, and so they're going to free you from that. Here's some audio from another video they put together. A scene from the blockbuster, The Dark Knight. With its themes of sacrifice and suffering for the greater good, this movie, for many observers, offers a number of striking parallels to biblical stories like Moses against Pharaoh or David against Goliath. Heroes seeking justice against great odds. The Bible's influence on Western civilization is immeasurable. It touches every aspect of our lives. Politics, literature, music, language. Where do you think the terms scapegoat, drop in the bucket, salt of the earth come from? But for all its influence and inspiration, the Bible remains a source of contention and confusion. Sort of a cultural tower of Babel. 
Uh, wait a second here. By the way, this uh, this the audio you're hearing here is from a clip that was broadcast on WBZ TV in Boston on the Sunday with Liz show. The Bible is a spiritual tower of Babel. Hang on a second here. Got to back this up. Notice what's being what's under attack here. It's uh, hang on a second. It's the Bible. It's subtle, but watch the attack. Here it is again. But for all its influence and inspiration, the Bible remains a source of contention and confusion, sort of a cultural Tower of Babel. According to scripture, the problem with the Tower of Babel, depicted in this 15th century painting, was its root in human pride. Wait a second. Um, Liz, are you saying that... um the Bible is a cultural uh, tower of Babel, a symbol of human pride. Huh. The Tower of Babel story equates monoliths with pride. By the way, they just switched to uh, the Reverend Ann Robertson, executive director of the Massachusetts Anti-Bible Society. The people want to build a tower. Why? says to make a name for themselves. One people, one language, one tower with its top in the heavens. By the way, she's actually preaching from the pulpit at the moment that this is, you know. That proclaims their superiority and their special closeness to God. God is not fond of monoliths. From the incredible diversity of creation to the preservation of not just one, but four different Gospels. God is not fond of monoliths? That's quite a... That would be another one of those really large jumps in logic that evil Knievel couldn't even uh, leap. (sighs) Another reason why women should not be pastors. This is exactly it. So God loves diversity. That's why there's four Gospels. And this will be extrapolated into God loves diversity of opinions and doesn't like people monolithically interpreting the Bible. Watch. God seems to have an interest in multiple perspectives. Ann Robertson is executive director of the Massachusetts Bible Society. God has an interest in multiple perspectives. You know, what's really funny is, is that all four Gospels proclaim that Jesus Christ was God in human flesh and they all agree that on the singular event of Christ's death and resurrection. Hmm. An organization determined to widen the public biblical discourse. So the Massachusetts Bible Society exists to, quote, widen the... Bible Society was founded as the first ecumenical organization in the country expressly to bring together the many voices of all the different denominations, the liberal, the conservative, the moderate, everything. You have this new theme, one book, many voices. What's the importance and significance of that right now? We've been concerned that for too long there has only been one supposed voice of the Bible. One. Oh boy. So basically, the Massachusetts Bible Society exists in order to muddy the waters, unchain you from the biblical text, teach you to listen to a still small voice, and bring in many voices and get rid of that obnoxious call of the of the Bible to repent and 
and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Hmm. How much anyone want to bet? You know, and, and I understand that wagering is just not a very sanctified thing to do. How anyone want to take me on on a wager here? I will bet fifty bucks. The Reverend Ann Robertson is pro homosexual marriage and has no and is really would like to see homo, uh, practicing homosexuals uh, preaching from the pulpit. Anybody want to take that bet? Anybody? way that it can be interpreted to the exclusion of all others and we feel that there are many different ways to interpret the scriptures we all interpret according to our own life story and our own life history and we're supposed to interpret the bible according to our own life story wrong go back and listen to my all of my lectures if you haven't heard them all on how to properly interpret the bible there really is only one proper interpretation of all of each passage of scripture and you you find it through the historical grammatical method but there was just him and the angels robertson points to interpretation like the contemporary midrash of julius lester when god finished making the world he felt as bright and sunny as love he'd never made a world before and if he said so himself and he did he thought he'd done a very good job what does it mean for you when you say scriptures or sacred text, the Torah, are, are the truth? What does that mean? How do you define truth? Yeah, I can't wait to hear this. Truth in the terms of... Yeah, what's truth? <laughs> you know. That's scriptures. Well, I would have to add an S to the truth. Oh, truths. He's going to add an S to the truth. There's truths. Um, because I think it's such a complicated document that um, to say truth uh, limits it in some ways, and certainly from a Jew. Oh, I see. So if you think the Bible teaches a singular truth, that limits it in, in, in oh boy. No, it doesn't. That's exactly what its author, the God, that would be God, the Holy Spirit, intended. Jewish perspective, um, all Jews don't read the book in the same way, don't interpret the Torah in the same way, don't think about the Torah in the same way. And so I would say that the book represents, you know, truths for, for me as a Jew. It certainly represents uh, the history, and I think Jews look at the Torah a lot, you know, just in terms of the history. Mark Burroughs is the professor of the history of Christianity at Andover Newton Theological School. Many people say, Why is it that all the academics are all liberals and unbelievers? Say that the uh, Bible and its meaning is, is largely owned or defined by a politically conservative voice these days. Uh, would you agree? I would say that's not true, although they've certainly gotten the major amount of press over the last years. When my more conservative friends or those who talk to me or those I listen to talk about uh, the fact that many Christians have abandoned the biblical way, I was asking, which, what is that biblical way? Is there some single biblical value that defines anything in particular? <laughs> well, apparently the Bible doesn't define anything in particular. Oh, give me a break. You talk about your, your mission. Are you trying to stop the right-wing conservative fundamentalist section of Christianity versus the liberal progressive section? Is it that simple or is it more complicated? I would say it's more complicated in the, the dualism and the division that exists right now in this country uh, we think is part of the problem. 
<laughs> well, right. The dualism, that's because the reason why there's disunity is because you've abandoned the Bible. It's because you deny it and its authority. You deny its message. You deny what God has done. We have nothing in common with you. You're the ones who've created the division by leaving what the scriptures teach. That if I have- the fact that you even exist as a, quote, pastor shows that you have absolutely nothing but contempt for God's word. A certain kind of interpretation I get labeled in one way or another and then automatically anything I say is disregarded and I think we have to be beyond those kinds of labels oh I see yeah see the problem is labeling no I thought it came down to truth what is truth Uh, unbelievable you know again a female pastor a a female woman pastor is nothing more than a visible symbol of rebellion against God's word. That's exactly what it is. Unbelievable. Anyway, so I just wanted to throw that out there because I again, I, it's a fine example of what how people have turned the Bible into a wax nose that they can bend any which way that they want, it's just so long as you don't believe that the Bible is actually teaching you the truth. As long as you believe in truths, even contradictory truths, you know, and it's a complicated document. You can't really boil it all down. Yet, you read the Bible, the apostles, those who hung out with Jesus had no problem reducing the message down to something really simple. These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. Plain and simple. Are these people offering that message? Absolutely not. They are in absolute contradiction and rebellion to that message. Repentance and the forgiveness of sins? No way. We just want to do good in the world, and we want to teach people to get along and love their enemies. That's the thing they focus in on to the exclusion of the important thing. All right. We are now, uh, let's see here. Let me make sure I've got this right here. Second break. Oh, Roseboro, what did you do with it? Hang on a second here. I've got to check for what I, what I, what did I do with today's lecture? (laughs) Man, I'm getting old. Hang on a second here. Let's see. My, I hate when I do stuff like that. Here it is. Okay. Here's, today, here's today's uh, continuing uh, lecture on how to properly interpret or correctly interpret the Bible. Again, the uh, uh, the PowerPoint presentation and the handouts uh, will be available online. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to post them on Twitter, Facebook, the website, as well as even attach them to the uh, the, the podcast uh, feed as well, so that everybody you can get a hold of these, study it, learn it, and use it. This is important stuff. So uh, here's me giving a, the basically part four of a lecture on how to properly interpret or correctly interpret God's word. Let's pray. Almighty God, you have called your church to witness that in Christ you have reconciled us to yourself. Grant that by your Holy Spirit we may, we may proclaim the good news of your salvation so that all who hear it may receive the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. All right, welcome to Adult Sunday School. This is the Sunday School class where you never graduate and there's never a final, although I think there should be. All right.
Um, I always like to start off with my class premise. This is a tradition that I started a while ago. So you understand where I'm coming from. And that is, first and foremost, sola scriptura, that the Bible is the inerrant word of God and the only authority of truth and doctrine regarding the true worship of God. That you, I don't think you have a flavor for just how under attack this doctrine is today. Okay, and it's not under attack from outside of the church. It's under attack from within the church. This is huge. I was uh, talking with a gal last week after Sunday school class, and she says, you know, I really believe the Bible is the Word of God. I really believe the miracles. I really believe that Christ rose from the dead. She says, it's as if I believe in magic. Well, magic's kind of a loaded word, but it is as if we believe in magic. We believe that God can do anything that isn't impossible to do that's contradicted by logic. For instance, God can't make a a mountain so high, and then make it a valley at the same time. The two things contradict each other. But we do believe, and I do confess, that Christ Jesus rose again from the dead three days after he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. That's a miracle. The scriptures aren't telling us a moral story. They're telling us a history there. And so it is truly without error, and it is harmonized in God's Word. Therefore, our reason must bow to Scripture. And that's really what this, uh, these last four weeks have been about. Solus Christus, we are saved by Christ's work alone. Sola gratia, we are saved by grace alone. Sola fide, through faith alone. And my own Latin word, this Roseborian Latin, it's interactiva. The class is interactive. That means you can stop me and ask questions. I do encourage questions. Just raise your hand and I'll call on you. And then if you, when I hear the question, I'll recite it to everyone else so that you guys can hear it. Today... We are finishing up our four-week series on how to properly read the Bible. And um, we've been looking at how to rightly divide the word of truth. Today we're going to be doing some comparative interpretations, and we're going to uh, look at passages regarding baptism. I thought what we would do is take the stuff that we've gone over over the last three weeks and actually see how the rubber hits the road, okay? So um, with that, we will dive into our lesson. Just by way of review, um, if you remember, properly interpreting God's Word, we follow what's called the historical grammatical method. We are not into form criticism. We are not into the historical higher criticism or anything like that. That's all liberal theology that is designed to undermine the authority of God's Word and uh, 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 excuse me. Sola Scriptura. The brain, the brain just stopped. Oh no, I'm getting old. <laughs> yeah, just had a senior moment. Okay, so interpreting God's word falls into three major categories. First of all, we look at it historically, understand that each of the different sections of scripture was written in a time and place in history and that comes into play it's grammatical in other words words mean something and to quote bill clinton it all depends on what is is okay it actually comes into play here and theological and by theological the centerpiece of that is that we believe that you interpret scripture properly understanding law and gospel and that by getting law and gospel correct that you uh, that you create a Christ-centered interpretation in other words Christ can literally be found throughout all of scripture old and new testament okay and if you remember last week this was the main point that we went over last week is that to rightly understand and interpret scripture 
is to necessarily distinguish between the law and the gospel elements in the text and then properly relate the former, that's the law, to the latter, the gospel. Justification by grace through faith in Christ is the ray, the main subject of all true biblical and Christian theology. The interpreter must see to it that his interpretation or hers um, of the text has Christ as its center, teaches him and glorifies him as Savior and Lord. And last week's, the major point of last week's lecture had to do with the fact that when you do law and gospel properly, then you do have a Christ-centered text. If you do the law unlawfully and somehow turn the law into something that's manageable, it doesn't, you know, it's something that you just, you follow these steps and voila, you're now achieving the law. You're doing it unlawfully and you've put yourself as the center of scripture rather than Christ. Okay. So pop quiz. I know there's no final but I thought I'd give a quiz. Anyone here know uh, Thomas Jefferson actually edited his own Bible? Okay. Does anyone know what the distinguishing characteristic was for the Jeffersonian Bible? He removed the miracles. Okay. That is correct. Okay. Got a smart class here. In fact, um, his Bible was actually named The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth. <clears throat> Excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> Jefferson wished to extract the doctrine of Jesus by removing sections of the New Testament containing supernatural aspects as well as perceived misinterpretations he believed had been added by the four evangelists. In essence, Thomas Jefferson did not believe in Jesus' divinity, the Trinity, resurrection, miracles, or any other supernatural aspect described to the Bible, but he loved Jesus, the moral teacher. Oh, we know that from his own writings. Thomas Jefferson squarely fits in the category of deist. The deist, if you want just a quick synopsis, a deist believes that there was a God who created everything, kind of set it up as a clock, wound the universe up, set it off spinning, and now he's fishing somewhere in the other side of the universe. Okay, and they're coming out of the age of enlightenment. Okay, they really think they can get the whole thing figured out. It's this natural philosophy. You can sit in your armchair with a good adult beverage and basically deduce logically how the whole universe works. And you don't need a you don't need a god to keep it going. So they didn't like Jesus the moral teacher. I mean, they loved Jesus the moral teacher, but they didn't like the supernatural aspect of it. They didn't want Supernatural, because the supernatural is a disruption of the natural order, the way things have been set up. If you understand the, the philosophy of David Hume, that's supposed to be impossible. I mean, these are the guys, they would sit down, they'd create a philosophy that was so elegant that at the end of it, they'd cry. It's the most elegant thing I've ever seen in my life. Yeah, okay. So Jefferson actually falls into this. So his Bible basically takes an exacto knife, and anytime there's a miracle, it's gone. Okay, now... We all look at this and we go, it's obvious this is not correct, okay? But I'm going to make this case. This still goes on today, okay? We've created idolatrous Bibles. In fact, there's one that's on the, on the market right now, which I call the Sinless Wrathless Bible. This is off of Amazon.com. I just grabbed the, the image. It's called the Positive Bible, Okay? Let me read this to you. This is uh, from the, uh, the people who publish it. 
Turn to any page in this book and you will be greeted with biblical passages that offer hope, help, and encouragement. The collection of advice, instruction, inspiration, assurance, and wisdom drawn from the King James Revised Standard, New International, King James Modernized, and the Living Bible Translation by scholar Kenneth Winston Cain has the power and beauty to teach and comfort across the centuries. Ponder just one passage or everyone. Browse this book at random and read it straight through. Find a problem or question in the index for more than, uh, more than 250 everyday life applications of Scripture, from healing to living through grief to nurturing a child, and you will be directed to biblical wisdom that speaks precisely to you, as timely and relevant to modern culture as the evening newscast. I submit to you, there's nothing different between this Bible and the Bible that Thomas Jefferson put together. Both of them are omitting passages of Scripture. This one's omitting God's wrath, His judgment. Talk about sin. We're going to look at the positive aspects of Scripture and use Scripture for life application. It's this idea that the Bible is a manual you know, if you would, it's you go down to your local auto parts store and you get the manual for your car and it teaches you how to solve all your problems. Are you a mother nurturing a child? Get the positive Bible and find in the index the scriptures, the positive scriptures that deal with nurturing children. Oh, beautiful, isn't it? Well, I always heard that a half-truth is a whole lie. And if you're going to focus only in on those passages of scripture and exacto knife out the parts that you don't want, you only want half the truth, you're deceiving yourself. So we live in an age where Bibles abound, including the positive Bible. So that's not how we do Scripture. So moving on today, we're going to do a little comparative interpretation. The first passage of Scripture we're going to dig into, and as promised, we're going to look at Rick Warren, Joel Osteen, and we're going to talk about baptism today. So we've got a lot of ground to cover. What I'd like to do first is do a, a proper interpretation of an entire passage. And I'm going to put it up on the overhead for you. It's Romans chapter 8 starting, actually we're going to do verses 1 through 6. But pay close attention to verse 6. We're going to do the whole thing in context. If you remember, part of the grammatical piece of all of this is that Context, context, context is important. You don't want to rip passages out of context and then start stringing them together. So let's look at the context of this passage. Let me read it to you there. Very comforting passages. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin He condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live in accord, in, according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. So, to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. 
those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Pretty straightforward. Now, this is a good translation. This is the one that's actually in your, in your Hugh Bible. But let's just do a little bit of work here on this. First, historically. This uh, epistle to the Romans was written by the Apostle Paul to the Christian church in Rome, written in the summer of A.D. 51 or the spring of A.D. 52. It's according to particular scholars. Probably written in Corinth. Okay? The context here... The, the general context of this passage begins with the gospel proclamation that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This passage announces the good news that we were unable to do perfect, uh, what we were unable to do, that's perfectly keep God's law, and it was done for us by Christ. Therefore, Christians no longer walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So you have a dichotomy set up between the flesh and the Spirit. Verses eight through uh, 5 through 8 describe the contrast and consequences between the life of the mindset on the things of the Spirit and the mindset on the things of the flesh, which is the sinful nature. Okay, If you want kind of a main outline of it, you can kind of outline it this way. The main points from verses 5 through 8, those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. To set the mind on the flesh is death. The mind set on the flesh is hostile to God. It's active hostility. That's what sinners are, actively hostile to God. It's not some kind of a passive thing at all. The mindset on the flesh does not submit to God's law. The mindset on the flesh cannot submit to God's law. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Okay, That's the bad news portion of the passage. So if we're doing law and gospel here, this is a law section here, speaking about the consequences of sin. So those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. If you want to know what that means, you have to back up and get the full context. Okay, If you remember, here's, here's the interpretation in full. Christ has redeemed us, and we no longer live under God's condemnation because of our sin and lawlessness. The law of the Spirit, that is the gospel, has set us free from the law of sin and death. That's the law. Christ accomplished this for us. Notice how we're interpreting the Scripture, really digging into what it means. Those who live according to the flesh, that's a sinful nature, set their minds on the things of the flesh. The mindset on the flesh is death. The mindset on the flesh is hostile to God. It cannot submit to God's law or even please Him. Okay? Now, would anyone challenge this interpretation? Notice that we're really just sticking really close to what the text says and trying to dig that out for meaning. Okay? Let me give you, then looking at it from law and gospel, the theological perspective, law done lawfully, mankind suffers from total depravity and utter sinfulness. Humans have no ability to save themselves. Those who live according to the flesh, that's a sinful nature, face death and judgment, for they cannot please God. This is, again, extrapolated out from the passage. And then a good cross-reference would be Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, which says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince and the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body, the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Notice when we're doing the law lawfully, all of us kind of feel miserable. Like, yeah. You don't want to hear it, but you have to hear it. Okay? 
So then Christ is the center of this passage. Focusing then in the context, Christ has saved us, redeemed us, fulfilled the perfect requirements of the law for us. Jesus pleases God for us. In him, by faith, we are no longer condemned. The God-given gift of faith equals the life of the Spirit. So when you're doing the passage, remember, we're talking about the life of the flesh, the life of the Spirit. You've got to define that down. What does it mean to have the life of the Spirit? The life of the Spirit is literally the Christian faith, trusting in Christ, which is given to us as a gift from God himself. Okay? In other words, salvation by faith equals setting your mind on the Spirit. Salvation by faith being defined as those who are in Christ Jesus. In other words, those who trust in Christ's finished work for salvation instead of themselves, their good works and law-keeping. Now, does anyone have a ch- want to challenge this interpretation? Does this sound like it's sound according to the history and the grammar and the context of these verses? Now, daily we sin much, and how do we start off our, our church services? We start off with the confession of sins. If we say no, we have no sin, the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. Okay, so every Sunday we start off by trucking in our baggage of sins. Okay? Now, the point here, though, is, is that the mind set on the Spirit is the mind, is literally the, it's, it's the mind that I trust in Christ. Okay? Not myself. Not my good works, not my law-keeping, but I trust in Christ. It's that gift of faith given to us in our baptism. Okay? Right. It leads us away from the flesh, and then we get to live like Paul did in Romans 7. Okay? The good that I ought to do, I don't do. Instead, it's, you know, it's the other thing. It's the other way around. Okay? So the Christian life is one of daily... Struggling with our flesh. It's simul justus et peccator, simultaneously justified and sinner at the same time. It's a lovely tension. It's a horrible place to be. And it would be a lot easier to just be a pagan and just be done with it and live in the flesh. You eat and sleep for tomorrow we die. Okay? But we as Christians, the mind of the spirit is literally despairing of our good works, knowing our standing before God according to the law, and humbly, as a beggar, receiving Christ's forgiveness and living in that faith. That's it. That's the mind of the Spirit. Okay? Now, the reason I wanted to go through this passage in more depth is kind of show you, you know, this is not hard to do. It's just, it's sticking to the text. And then if you're not sure what a section means, you look for some cross-references to help you flesh it out. But when you stick to the text, stick to the grammar, stick to the words, you don't usually stray too far and keep it in context. Now, I'm going to quote this gentleman right here from his book, The Purpose Driven Life, from day one. You can't even get out of day one without him radically twisting Scripture. Now, if you remember, okay, this, this idea that salvation, um, when we do the law lawfully, Christ is the center, okay, I want you to pay real close attention to this, um, to this way he uses this. Here's what he says in day one. Many people try to use God for their own self-actualization. What on earth is self-actualization? I really don't know. 
okay? They want God to be a personal genie who serves their self-centered desires. But that is a reversal of nature and is doomed to failure. You were made for God, not vice versa. And life is about letting God use you for his purposes. Okay, do you feel the law there? Life is about letting God use you for his purposes, not you're using him for your own purposes. The Bible says... Obsession with self in these matters is, is a dead end. Attention to God leads us into an open, into the open, into a spacious and free life. Believe it or not, he is quoting Romans 8, 6, which we just read. Is that what this passage says? He says, the Bible says, obsession with self in these matters is a dead end. Attention to God leads us out into the open, into a spacious and free life. Now, I put the Romans 8, 6 thing and pointed out that it's the message. This is from day one of the purpose-driven life. Let's just do a little bit of comparative work here, okay? I created a weird build here. All right. Warren says, the Bible says, obsession with self in these matters is a dead end. Attention to God leads us into the open, into an open, spacious, and free life. Verse 6 in a good translation says, to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is peace and life. Do you guys see any connection here at all? Okay. This is a Bible balloon animal. Y'all, y'all have been to the circus and you've seen the clowns and they, have, they, they blow up a balloon and then they twist it and it turns into one of, like a dog or a rabbit or whatever. Okay. What Rick Warren has done here, he's actually twisted the scripture and he's created a balloon animal. Okay. And it doesn't look anything like the original. Okay. First of all, he's using a bad translation, and this is actually taken from the message paraphrase. And I want to point some things out to you, just doing some comparative work between how he's using this verse out of context to what the verse actually teaches. Number one, notice in context when we read the passage, it was the mindset on the spirit versus the mindset on the flesh. Then you have to define what those things are. Okay, Rick Warren, ripping it out of context, puts attention to God versus obsession with self using the message paraphrase. And I would argue that obsession with self is less than mind set on the flesh. Yes, the mind set on the flesh is obsessed with itself, but it's a lot more than just that. Okay, so there's some correlation, but his, this idea of obsession with self is less than what Scripture means when it says the mind set on the flesh. Okay? And I would even argue that the message paraphrase which says attention to God is what leads us into a free and spacious life, whatever that means, is not equal, is not synonymous with the biblical text which says the mindset on the spirit. Why? Because attention to God implies I'm doing it. I'm paying attention to God. But when we just read the text and you interpreted it properly, the mindset on the spirit is the one that trusts in Christ, despairs of its own ability isn't trying to please God through the law, but instead understands that it is Christ who pleased God for us. When you take it out of context, now attention to God is something that I do. It is now a man-centered text when it was a Christ-centered text. So Warren ignores the immediate context of the verse. And notice, um, no mention of sin or the righteous requirements of God's law or Christ's perfect keeping of the law for us. No clarification on what it means to have your mind set on the things of the Spirit, which are those who live by faith. 
And taken from its context and put into another, the passage switches from being Christ-centered to man-centered. And as a result, Warren uses the law unlawfully. Paying attention to God does the work that we do. Leads us into the open and spacious and free life. It sounds like, the way he's twisted this scripture, if I just pay attention to God, then I'm going to be free, have a wonderful life, two BMWs in my garage. That's what it sounds like. Yeah. Right. Right. The very thing he criticizes is the very thing that he then ends up doing. And I'm going to, t- I'm going to say this as somebody who has studied, studied Warren for the past few years. He's a master at this. The first sentence of the purpose-driven life is, it's not about you. And then the next 386 pages is all about you. He has a PhD in theology from Fuller Theological Seminary. I, I, let, me, let me say this. Let me say this. I can speak for myself personally. I have dialogued with, with Rick Warren. He is fully aware that he's twisting scripture here. I've made him aware. Rick Warren's point of view is this. I, I, I'm going to try to be gracious here. Rick Warren really believes the gospel is preached to unbelievers and that, that once you hear it and you're tipped into the kingdom, okay, then you've got to get to work. Okay? The gospel is something you rarely ever hear. And the reason why is because it's not, you really only need it if you're, if you're somebody who's an unchurched person. He's bought into the Robert Schuller positive way of speaking the gospel. And once you get somebody into the church and get them working and they hear the gospel, you get them in, then you, you know, that's it. And then it's all about hearing what you need to do in order to lead a Christ-pleasing life. That's the focus of all of his sermons. I could show you examples of this. Recently, just a few weeks ago, he did a sermon series on, you know, and advertised it to all the non-unchurched people out there that, Come to church, to Saddleback, and we'll teach you a lesson about how you can have a stress-free life. Do you, do you sense a different gospel here? I can't tell you what his motives are. I can tell you what he says that they are, but I can't tell you what the man's all about. I can judge his doctrine and his theology and how he uses Scripture against Scripture. That's why I was trying to teach you an objective way to, to look at these things. When we do the comparison, here's what he said Here's what Scripture says properly interpreted. Then you begin to see a collision. What's going to give way? Well, Warren's a nice guy. He means well. Look at all the good that he's doing. He has his global peace plan. Look at all the people he's feeding in Rwanda. We need to just give him a break. Or do we? Having done the research, the average amount of time that any family spends at Saddleback Church is 2.7 years. 2.7 years. The number one reason given for people leaving Saddleback Church is because they say they are spiritually starving to death. His apologists will point to the Saddleback Statement of Belief, which has two pages on its website. The first page basically says that Jesus Christ is God showing himself to us. Peek-a-boo! Okay. <laughs> okay. The second page is a little bit more doctrinally correct. But here's the deal. I've heard Rick Warren, and I have him on video, telling a group of unbelievers that God is pleased with them if they make the world a better place and use their talents to the best of their ability. I have it on my website at extremetheology.com. Okay? So 
I would say that there's, there's uh, two sides to this. I think there's a carefully crafted apologetic to cover his posterior. And I think that there's another piece to it where I think he's a lot more liberal than you would think. I think Rick Warren is a closet liberal theologian who wants to pass himself off as a conservative. Okay, that's my assessment. Let's continue. Okay, let me give you another quick example. I have read many books that suggest ways to discover the purpose of my life. This is, again, from Purpose Driven uh, Life, next page. All of them could be classified as self-help books because they approach the subject from a self-centered viewpoint. Self-help books, even Christian ones, usually offer the same predictable steps to finding your life's purpose. Consider your dreams, clarify your values, set some goals, figure out why you are, what you are good at, aim high and go for it. Of course, these recommendations often lead to great success. You can usually succeed in reaching a goal if you put your mind to it, but being successful and fulfilling your life's purpose are not at all the same. You need, to, you need more than self-help advice. The Bible says self-help is no help at all. Self-sacrifice is the way, my way, to finding yourself your true self. Does anyone know where that passage is in Scripture? Maybe I'm being legalistic here, but God's Word talks about those who are prophets. And if they say, thus saith the Lord, and the Lord hath not saith, bad King James from Roseboro, okay, the punishment for such a thing is stoning. Now, I'm not advocating that we stone Rick Warren, but I will say this. If you're going to say the Bible says, when somebody opens up their scriptures, it had better say that in context, and mean it. Otherwise, you're not acting as an agent of the Lord. You are acting as an agent of the devil. And it is that hard of a line. Forgive me, I get a little exercised here. Let's take a look again. Let's look at it this way, because here's you actually figured out where the passage was coming from. Here's what Warren says. The Bible says self-help is no help at all. Self-sacrifice is the way, my way, to finding yourself your true self. Okay? This is supposedly being quoted from Matthew 16, 25, but let me read it in context. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Okay, now, if we're going to interpret this passage correctly, it all hinges on how you properly define deny yourself. Okay, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Denying yourself comes back to properly interpreting law and gospel. Denying self literally means I'm a beggar, I'm a sinner, God have mercy on me. Okay? It is not my self-sacrifice. Denying self is not the same as self-sacrifice. Self-sacrifice is a work I do. Okay? For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Again, properly interpreting this requires you to do law and gospel. When you do it properly, Christ is now king. Christ is the one who saves us. It is Christ's sacrifice, not mine, that is the key thing here. Okay, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his life? Or what shall a man give in return for his life? So in misquoting it from a bad paraphrase, stay away from the message, by the way. I don't recommend it as a paraphrase, and I don't recommend at all reading paraphrases and calling that Bible study. So the point of all of this is that when you do the comparative work, okay, Scripture tells us 
that the Bereans were of a more noble character than the Thessalonians. Because when they received the word of God from Paul, the gospel, they went and checked it out according to the Old Testament to see if what Paul was preaching was true. If we are an angel from heaven to preach to you gospel other than the one you've already received, let him be anathema. In other words, do the work properly. And if you want to know one of the jobs, if you look at the job description of a pastor, part of it is rightly dividing the word of truth. Whether they're stupid or not doesn't excuse them. Okay, If you do not know how to properly divide and interpret the word of truth, get out from behind the pulpit. You are doing more damage than good. Okay, Now let me give you another gentleman, very popular today. I want to talk to you today about living in total victory. <laughs> a little over 2,000 years ago, they crucified Jesus on the cross. They put him in the grave, and they thought it was the end of it. But thank God, on the third day, he arose. Remember, this is the video I played for you four weeks ago. He said, because I live, you shall live also. He wasn't talking about just breathing. He was talking about living an abundant life, not a barely get-by life, not a life filled with bad habits and addictions and lack and mediocrity. No, because of the price he paid, we have a right to live in total victory. Run at this point. Run. Turn it off the TV. Run. Okay? Not partial victory to where we have a good family, we have good health, but we constantly struggle in our finances. That's not total victory. If God did it for you in one area, he can do it for you in another area. Where does it say that in Scripture? Let me continue. (laughs) Notice I have my hair done that. He has paid the price so that we can be totally free. That means free from bad habits and addictions, free from fear and worry, free from discouragement and depression, free from poverty and lack, and free from low self-esteem. Where does it say this in Scripture? You need to start seeing yourself the right way. You're not a sick person trying to get well. You're a well person fighting off sickness. Where does it say this in Scripture? Okay, this was the opening part of a 30-minute long sermon that pretty much followed nothing but this. Christ died on the cross so that you can have total victory. You're not a sick person trying to get well. You're a well person fighting off sickness. I'm sorry. Scripture says that we are totally depraved. That in our rebellion to God, we can literally say of the people of the world, you are of your father the devil. We're adopted into God's family. We weren't born into it. And the only reason why we're adopted into it is because Christ covers us with his blood. Now, here comes the fun part. A little biblical balloon animal. The scripture says in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4, watch this. Long before God laid down the earth's foundation, he had you on his mind. Because of the sacrifice Christ made, we are free people. And not just barely free, but abundantly free. Ephesians 1 verse 4. Okay, notice he said the scripture says. And this is all to support all the stuff previous. Let's just do a little bit of work in the text. Osteen said, The scripture says, Long before God laid down the earth's foundation, He had us on His mind. He was thinking about you. Hey, 
Because of the sacrifice Christ made, we are free people. Not just barely free, but abundantly free. Does this say this anywhere in God's Word? Well, apparently, this is Ephesians 1, 4. Let's read it in context. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will. Wow, when you read it in context, it kind of takes on a different flavor, doesn't it? Night and day. And we shouldn't be surprised. Scripture warns us that the wolves masquerade as angels of light. Okay? In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Notice that when you read it in context, the whole verse now becomes about Christ and what He's done for us and how He's predestined us, how He's adopted us. But when you rip it out of its context and use a really bad paraphrase, it now becomes, God was looking down from heaven and thought, oh, you are so special. You're my son. You're my daughter. I want you to have a checkbook, and I want you to have an account that has millions of dollars in it, and I want you to be free from low self-esteem. This is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. These people are selling people a bill of goods that is sending them to hell. Every weekend they're saying that there's between 65 and 80,000 people show up to his church for all the services. It's broadcast around the world. Okay? In the last days, Scripture tells us, people will no longer put up with sound doctrine, but will gather for themselves teachers who will tell them what their itching ears want to hear. I think that today is today. That's today. That's now. Notice how many people are here. You guys heard about your sins this morning, didn't you? You heard about how you cannot please God no matter how much you try and how Christ did it all for you. It doesn't sell. That's right. We all fall short of the glory of God. And I can tell you this. If I had to save myself based on my own works, I have no hope at all. None. I am as good as dead. Wherever God's church exists, Satan is hard at work undermining it, okay? And we should expect it to be there. But the right thing to do, Christians, know your scriptures, know how to interpret it properly, and then when error confronts you in the face, don't sit there and go, well, should I be quiet or should I say something? Say something. Take your friend aside and say, you know, I've been really concerned about you. The reason I'm so concerned is because I've been listening to what you're saying Scripture says, and I'm seeing something completely different. Let's compare notes and get into the text and let God's Word do what God's Word does. Because we do believe in magic, in a way. The Holy Spirit uses His Word, sometimes for judgment, other times to save and redeem. And what I found in my experience in talking with people that are at the saddlebacks and places like that is they're reacting against the legalism of their youth. Okay? And um, it's like Rosenblatt talks about the, uh, uh, that one movie about the savant mathematician kid um, where uh, Robin Williams says, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. 
Okay, there's a sense to it that the people who are going to these churches have been spiritually abused on the opposite end. Okay, legalistic Christianity, and it's stifling. And they, they know they can't live it. So they go to someplace like Saddleback because at least there they're not getting condemned. Okay, but it's going from the frying pan and into the fire. All right, if, we, if what we believe about Scripture is true, that Christ died for our sins that it's about salvation by grace alone through faith alone, that's all about Christ, then there's no room for us to say, well, maybe they're in or maybe they're not. We've got we to gotta fight this battle as if we really believe what we, what we hold to. Okay? Now, I'm going to do this in nine minutes, so work with me here. Okay? And I'm doing this part of, partly as a, as a promise to some people, talking about biblical teaching regarding baptism. Again, this is all about getting into the text. You'll notice if you talk to your evangelical friends that they have a different idea about baptism than we do, okay? And I want to do this comparison by Scripture. And if you want a copy of this, you can actually go to my website, extremetheology.com, and there's a link in the categories that says Treasures of Scripture. And there's a, there's a PDF file on the wonderful promises of baptism. You can, link it, you can download it as a PDF. But we'll do it quick. Talk to your friends about baptism because I found this is actually a good way to start a dialogue with somebody about what Scripture says. Okay, The typical evangelical statement regarding baptism goes something like this. Our evangelical church believes scriptural teaching on baptism may be summarized as follows. One, baptism is an act of obedience to the command of Christ fulfilled by individuals who have received His forgiveness, submitted themselves to His leadership. Notice already the emphasis is on what the person's doing. Baptism symbolizes a heart washing by God's forgiveness and also an identification with Christ in His death and resurrection as the individual dies to an old way of life and lives a new life in Him. Notice the law there? Okay. Baptism provides an opportunity for believers to make a formal profession of their faith before the church and the whole world. Baptism is a biblical rite of initiation into the body of Christ and may therefore be considered a prerequisite for joining the membership of the church. Okay. This is the typical evangelical view of baptism. Now, if you know your Bible, it's not going to be difficult to show that's not what Scripture teaches. But when you do this, you have to do it in love. Okay, Talking to your evangelical friend about baptism is not the same as talking to Rick Warren or Joel Osteen. Okay? When dialoguing with evangelicals about the doctrines of baptisms, first, set the ground rules. Agree that you should not believe any more or any less about baptism than what the Scripture says about it. Two, understand that evangelical beliefs regarding baptism are, are what they are because they are based on reason and a man-centered view of salvation and sanctification. And many times they just hear it from their pastor. This is what my pastor taught me. It says something like this. And then they go on their merry way. This is not something where most evangelicals spend any time at all doing Bible study whatsoever because it doesn't fit into the practical life application category. Okay? But this is a great way to open up a dialogue to get them to see the bigger picture of Scripture. So um, I think you got the idea here. So basically the way it works for them is that you make a decision for Christ, you get baptized as an act of obedience to show the world you've made a decision from Christ. Is this found in the Scriptures? Well, let's consider this for a moment. First of all, regarding decisions for Christ, this is important that you get this down. Okay? Scripture does not say that you are saved by your decisions. Okay? Decision Magazine has got it wrong. Okay? In fact, Scripture says the exact opposite. Do 
the text with the grammar. John, the Gospel of John, starting at uh, chapter 1, verse 11. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, he gave them the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. The NIV, which a lot of evangelicals use, actually says this, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or husband's will, but born of God. Okay? Scripture says you're not born by your decisions, at least not spiritually. John six forty three. Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Okay, I think the Greek word is halkuo there. The idea is, the, the picture of it is, a, you know, you've you got a rope and a statue. Statues don't move on, them, on their own. Throw some ropes around the statue and start dragging it. Okay, that's the idea behind that verb. The Father draws him. John 6, 65. And he said, this is why I told you, no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. You are not saved by your decision. You're saved by God's decision. It's the opposite end of it. For the mind that is set on the flesh, Romans 8, 7, is hostile to God. It, can, it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. If I can make a decision for Christ, and that's what saves me, then I can do something. If I could love God with all my heart, and that would save me, then I could do something, but I cannot. Not of a human decision. I can't come unless the Father draws me. Can't come unless the Father grants it to me. And in my sinful state, I am hostile to God and cannot even do His law. This kind of takes the whole decision thing off the table. Believe me when I tell you, this will be mind-bending for many people. Okay, now let's get into baptism proper. Stick to the text. Acts 2.38, Peter's great Pentecost sermon. Let me just read you the passage. Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. Peter gets up. He's been literally anointed with the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit, and he performs this miracle of preaching a sermon. That was the big miracle on Pentecost preached a sermon, tells people that they've crucified the Savior, they feel horrible and bad, what shall we do? And he says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins. According to the text, what was the purpose of this baptism? For the forgiveness of sins. Believe me when I tell you, no evangelicals ever hear that. Okay? Bonus verse here, Acts 22.12. Again, a good parallel. Paul is talking about how he was on the road to Damascus. And the Lord appears to him. He's blinded. He goes into town. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins. Calling on his name. 
Okay? Purpose of this baptism? Wash away your sins. Who's doing the washing? Can't be me. Can't be the pastor. It's got to be Christ. Stick to the verbs. Okay? I'm going to do this really quick here. So we hear from the text that um, in our baptism, our sins are forgiven. Romans 6, 3 through 4. Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. According to the text. See, when you do the text, it's a different thing. What What were we baptized into when we were baptized? The answer is into his death. Okay? Who's doing that? It's got to be the Holy Spirit. The emphasis now becomes on God rather than the person. Okay? Other verbs were buried, were raised, live. Okay? So we've learned just from looking at the text in our baptisms, our sins are forgiven. We're baptized into Christ's death. We were buried with Christ in order to live a new life. No evangelical hears this. Our texts from the epistle this morning, Galatians 3.27, for all of you who were baptized in Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. In allusion back to the minor prophet Hosea talking about righteous garments. Okay? According to the text, what were we clothed with when we were baptized? Christ. Okay? So, so far, if you walk them through it, just sticking to the text, our sins are forgiven, we're baptized into Christ's death, we're buried with Christ, we're clothed with Christ. Okay? Colossians 2, 11-12, In him you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with the circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. According to these verses, what is baptism equated with? Answer, circumcision. Who's doing the circumcising according to the text? Christ. Whether the verbs are attached then. See, stick to the verbs. Pull out the words. Walk them through it. Circumcision. Who's doing the circumcising? Christ. What other verbs are attached? Buried and raised. You'll notice in all of these passages in talking about baptism, it's not the person being baptized who's doing the work. Because who can forgive the sins? Is it the pastor? Well, it could be. But Christ is the one doing. We're clothed with Christ. We're buried with Christ. We live with Christ. Our hearts are circumcised. And the text takes great pains to say, not with the hands of men, but by the hands of Christ. This is a completely different view of baptism than what they've been told. I think we're going to have to end there. But if you, again, there's more to this. You can get it at extremetheology.com. Click on Treasures of Scripture. Okay? If you take the time to walk your friends through it, I've done this with many of my evangelical friends. They are blown away by the passages because they've never been taught it. And it's a good place to start to build a dialogue and a conversation with them. But you can only do it if you stick to what the text says and walk them through it in a dialogue and have them tell you what it means. All right. So, <clears throat> sorry for the uh, entertainment there at the end. <laughs> All right, so that's my lecture on the basics of biblical interpretation and how to correctly interpret the Bible. Now, what I've done is while this was uh, broadcasting, while this was playing, I've been working on the website, 
and uh, working on getting these notes available. As soon as I'm done posting all of them, I'm going to tweet them out, and I'm going to put the links up on Facebook so that you can all download them. And I also make them available on iTunes uh, via the iTunes podcast. So if you subscribe to uh, the Fighting for the Faith podcast via iTunes, you'll be able to see the notes there in iTunes, and you can download the PDF documents, PowerPoint slides, and the handout. This is important and critical information that will help arm you and teach you how to correctly interpret God's Word. And uh, again, so important today because there's so many people out there talking about the Bible, but in reality, they're not telling you what it says. They are undermining its authority and their interpretations. If you've listened to any of our sermon reviews here on Fighting for the Faith, then you know that many of those interpretations, if you can call them that, are spurious at best. Need to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you in order to pay our broadcast fees and our salaries so that we can continue bringing this important Christ-centered and cross-focused outreach to you. You can support us a few ways. Uh, The simplest is to visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. And click on one of our friendly yellow donate buttons. That allows you to make your gift uh, available instantly, securely online using your credit card. Or you can uh, make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Well, we're at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. And my hope is that you enjoy your hard-earned weekend. You've been busy out serving your neighbor in the vocation that God has put you in, and I pray that your honeydew list is not too long uh, so that you'll be able to get some rest and relaxation, recharge your batteries, and by all means, visit a church where you're able to hear the good news of the gospel and uh, sit at the feet of Jesus. Don't worry about being busy. Sit at the feet of Jesus and hear the amazing, comforting words of Christ crucified for your sins. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on today's program or any other program for that matter, you can at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook or follow me on Twitter and receive our subversive microblogging tweets. My name there is Pirate Christian. Until next week, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won for you by Jesus' shed blood on the cross. Amen. <laughs>